Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2019. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting now from uh, NBC News. Uh, nine years ago, Bob Inglis ran for a seventh term in the U.S. House of Representatives. Didn't make it out of the Republican primary. He lost by nearly a three to one uh, margin, and his uh, estrangement from South Carolina voters ran deep. Uh, the reason he was rejected, chief reason anyway, he not only believed climate change was real, as a solution he proposed a tax on carbon. And uh, his response, he went all in, trying to convince uh, conservatives, Republicans, climate change is real, carbon tax is a good uh, solution. He is running his own uh, nonprofit, Republican, the EN, uh, standing at least in part for uh, environment. Uh, we welcome in uh, Bob Inglis uh, to the program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I want to start, uh, Congressman, with, with with your background. Um, you, uh, before you went into politics, what did you do? Well, I was a commercial real estate lawyer in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, then ran for Congress in uh, 1992 and served for six years, uh, saying that climate change was nonsense. Um, I didn't know anything about it except that Al Gore was for it. Um, <laughs> and and in as much as I represented quite a red district uh, that uh, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, that was the end of the inquiry for me. And so then I was out six years doing commercial real estate law again and ran again in 04. Uh, so, and and some other issues. Uh, I think you had 100% from the uh, National Rifle Association, uh, some, you know, pretty standard Republican views. Yeah, I, um, I, it, my lifetime ratings, let's see, American Conservative Union rating was uh, 93, 100% uh, Christian Coalition, 100% National Right to Life, A with the NRA, zero with the Americans for Democratic Action, and uh, 23 by some mistake with AFL-CIO. I was really gunning for a zero. So, uh, so pretty conservative uh, voting record. And, and you know, uh, even in, in, in the, what we called Inglis 2.0, the new and improved version that started in 2004, um, even then it was a conservative voting record. It's just that uh, when I started out in 04, I said that this would be different, that I was uh, going to be uh, all about energy security and focused, um, uh, uh, use that terminology in order to address climate change, and then became more and more um, uh, overt about that and uh, uh, ended up introducing a, uh, a carbon tax in 2009. Uh, so what? So there was an, an interregnum there, right? You were in Congress before that out. Uh, I think you ran for Senate, lost, and so, but back. Um, what, what caused English 2.0? Well, yeah, it's, I guess I'm a recidivist, right? I came back for <laughs> that's what you could consider it. I was there six, gone six to into commercial real estate law, and then back for another six. Yeah, and what what happened, Tom? Was uh, you know what what created English 2.0, the new and improved version, was that um, a three-step metamorphosis for me. First step was my son coming to me uh, when I was running in 2004. He was voting for the first time. He's the eldest of our five children. So um, he had just turned 18. So he said to me, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Um, his, uh, uh, his four sisters agreed. His mother agreed. A new constituency was born. You know, this is a very important constituency to respond to. Uh, they, they can change the locks on the doors. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, my son was not saying, was not really making a threat. He was going to vote for me no matter what. I think what he's really saying was, Dad, I love you, and you can be better than you were before. So how about be relevant to my future and to my, your four, four daughters' futures? And, uh, and do something about this. So that was the first step. Second step was going to Antarctica with the science committee and seeing the evidence in the uh, ice core drillings. Uh, and then third step was another science committee trip and, and really a, a spiritual awakening on that trip with a, uh, an Aussie climate scientist uh, who's become a very dear friend now who was showing us uh, coral bleaching. And I could tell... As Scott uh, Heron, is his name, talked to me and showed me things in that snorkeling episode that he was worshiping God in what he was showing me, that he was not worshiping the corals, that he was worshiping the creator behind them. And so I knew we shared a worldview, 
before any words were spoken. Uh, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi said, uh, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And so Scott was preaching the gospel. I heard it. Later we had a chance to talk. And he inspired me with, by, by talking to me about uh, changes in his life uh, that he was making in order to love God and love people. Uh, he does some things that maybe some of my conservative friends would find strange. He rides his bike to work. He tries to do without air conditioning in Townsville, Australia. It's a pretty hot place as long as his wife and three daughters will let him get away with it. Um, and he hangs the family's clothes out on the line, tries to do without the electric dryer. Um, so I got right inspired. I wanted to be like Scott, loving God and loving people. So I came home and introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. And that, uh, as you said at the outset, Tom, got me in a bit of trouble. So that uh, it goes to, the, the, I guess, the tribalism, the polarization. Um, I guess that was your chief sin, right? You, but uh, you, you, had, you had very orthodox views on a lot of other things. But yeah. but the Republican primary voters couldn't stomach this, I guess. Well, yes, and I, I had committed other sins too. I should confess them all, right? It's, okay. It's, it's, you know, I I, I uh, voted against the troop surge in Iraq. Isn't that interesting that that's turned around as an orthodoxy? You know, we think that political orthodoxies are fixed, but they're actually quite fluid. And so, back then, though. Uh, my vote against the troop surge uh, uh, was considered an affront to our president, George W. Bush. Um, and so Republicans are pretty upset about that. But, um, you know, now it's isn't it interesting that uh, President Trump trashes a whole effort in Iraq about once a month. So um, that's out the window. But it was a heresy at the time. Other heresies I committed, I was for comprehensive immigration reform. Um, although we never called it that. And, and, and the unforgivable sin by the Tea Party is that I voted for TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the President Bush's rescue of the banks. Um, but my most endearing heresy, the one that, that uh, made it look like I just crossed to the other team, was that I said that climate change is real and let's do something about it. Um, so that speaks, before we get into climate change, that uh, has the, the need for purity, uh, has that increased, do you think, over time? You know, I think it's getting a bit better now after a, a, a peak that went higher than when I was tossed out of Congress. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, uh, um, uh, what I thought was happening, and, and I think it is true it was, is that the, the economic dislocation of the Great Recession caused people to want, uh, the, the, the tribe insisted on orthodoxy. You know, when, when there's plenty of food, the tribe says to you, yeah, bring your friends, that's fine, uh, bring them to the table. But when this, the food gets scarce, it's only for the tribe, you know? And so the orthodoxy becomes tighter when the tribe is under stress. And so in the Great Recession, we were under economic stress. Um, and so there was some conformity that was expected to the orthodoxy. But then curiously, Tom, I think it actually went even higher, even as the economy improved and it became sort of not economic uh, forces causing that conformity, but sort of cultural forces causing the conformity. Um, uh, but I believe that's starting to wane. I think we're beginning to see uh, a little bit of uh, break in that. I, I don't know so yet. I, I just hope so on that part. So uh, you you had what I think you describe as a face plant there, right? Uh, what you, you... <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. That's when, uh, uh, yeah, to give you the numbers on that, you know. Uh, and in a way, really, I'm uh, my political life is a measuring life of what, of the um, acceptance of climate change and then the a decade of rejection and then now we're coming out of that decade, I believe. So that's the good news. But to, to, to mark that decade, just consider this. 2004, when I ran again, I was clear with the district that I represented that uh, this was my new Inglis 2.0, and we were going to be focused on energy security and climate change is real. Um, and in the 2004 primary, I had two opponents. One was credible, um, and they split between them 15% of the vote. Um, 
Uh, did you catch that brag? I was bragging about getting 85% of the vote. Um, so, uh, um, but uh, there's there's a humbling coming. Um, and then 2006 is still all right with the Republican Party voters that I was focused on energy security. 2008, I had a primary opponent who called me the Al Gore of the Republican Party. I don't think he meant it as a compliment. Um, and then, uh, and then 2010. Oh, my. Uh, in a Republican runoff, I got 29% of the vote, and the other guy uh, got 71% of the vote. So uh, that's, yes, a rather spectacular face plant. But if you, if you just think about it, too, what was happening at the time is just look at the early 08. Um, Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich, the former speaker, were on the couch uh, literally sitting on a couch with the, the Capitol projected behind him. We don't agree on much, do we, Newt? No, Nancy, but we agree climate change is real and we need to do something about it. That was early 08. By the end of 08, Newt had switched. We don't know, he said. We don't know whether climate change is real. And sadly, so did most other Republican leaders. Um, I persisted. So, uh, um, but, and there, there started uh, what we call at RepublicEN.org a decade of disastrous disputation. Um, and, but the good news is it ended in uh, 2018, we believe. Uh, it ended. Yeah, because the way that you can mark the ending, I think, is um, uh, the loss of the House. Uh, by the loss of majority in the House of Representatives in Washington by Republicans, um, mm. you know, um, and the realization uh, among those uh, Republicans that uh, if we're ever going to win the majority back, you got to win in suburban districts, and if you carry a retro affect on climate into those suburban districts, you're not going to win, and so. Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, Senator Fritz Hollings used to say, no education in the second kick of a mule. Well, so Republicans got the first kick of the mule in November of 2018. And I think they realized that uh, don't wait around for the second kick of that mule. Um, uh, get going on climate change. Mm. Uh, so do you think that the, those suburban districts, uh, do you think climate change is an important uh, yeah, important topic, and and that Republicans will have to moderate their views to win those. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, if you look at the the polling data, and just uh, what uh, also from anecdotal information that re really people in those suburban districts um, want to know, especially young people in those districts and young conservatives um, want their party to be relevant to their future, just like my son and my four daughters wanted me to be. Um, and so um, they, they want to see a grand opportunity party, and they don't want to see a grumpy old party. Um, they, they don't want to be part of a grumpy old party. Uh, they want to be part of figuring out how to fix this thing. And so uh, the, the, probably the best indication of how that message has been received by at least some of the key leaders in Washington and the Republican Party is a press release from the Republican side of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, one of the most important committees in the House. Um, a headline in that press release on February 6th of this year, following the loss of the uh, majority in, 2000, in November of 18, was Republicans are focused on realistic solutions to climate change. The next week, uh, the three ranking Republicans on that committee, uh, uh, Shimkus, Walden, and Upton penned an op-ed, lead sentence was exactly that. We're focused on realistic solutions to climate change. The following week, uh, my friend Frank Lucas, uh, who's a rank, ranking Republican on the Science Committee, had a uh, Republican witness, Joe Makett, from the Niskanen Center, who's a scientist who accepts the, uh, uh, the mainstream scientific consensus on climate change. And it was the first time, Tom, in literally a decade that the Republican witness at the Science Committee had been among those scientists um, uh, talking about the reality of climate change, literally the first in a decade. Oh, do you think there is a generational shift? 
Yeah, it is. Uh, in fact, I, I, I saw it at uh, BYU. Um, I had a great conversation with uh, college Republicans at BYU um, uh, before a, a, a another public event we had, and um, I've, it was. I definitely heard that. I asked them um, their views, and they were, um, as I might have expected, very much uh, wanting. Uh, uh, free enterprise solutions to climate change. Um, they they wanted their party to step forward with answers. Um, and then I ask them, what about your parents and grandparents? And uh, um, the the answer back uh, from many students was, parents are a little bit hard, and grandparents are very hard uh, to convince on climate change. Uh, so looking at a couple of polls, this is from last year, but. Uh, Thirty-one percent of Republicans accept that uh, there's an overwhelming scientific consensus on climate uh, change, human-caused climate change. Even among Democrats, uh, not a top five priority. At least that's pulled from last year. Right. That's um, this is a challenge of climate change. Of course, um, is it? If you ask people, what is what are the issues important to you? Um, very, very few people put climate change in the top of their list. Um, the things that come to the top are, you know, the economy, jobs, taxes, uh, health care, those kind of things. Those come to the top. But if you turn that question around a bit and say, what should be the top priorities of our country? Climate change zooms toward the top. And I think what that shows is it's a difference. It's an awareness that all of us have that individually, we really can do very little about climate change. I mean, you can do some things, uh, but in order to fix it, you got to have the whole world in on this thing. And so we all feel a little bit powerless. And, and so we believe that the government, our government should be focused on it, but we don't put it in our priority list. So, um, so what's important to all of, uh, all of us, uh, you know, we're, we're at George Mason University and our colleague Ed Maybach and Tony Lacerowitz at Yale have the, an ongoing study called Global Warming Six Americas. And they describe six personality types from alarmed Alice to dismissive Dan, um, and basically, you know, it's 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 the, it's six different kind of reactions to climate change, and what their research shows is if you increase the sense of efficacy that we can do something about this, you increase engagement over all six Americas from from dismissive Dan to alarmed Alice. In other words, it's all about whether we feel that we can do something about this or not determines whether we're willing to engage and whether we place it as a high priority or not. Uh, so uh, if we depend on Congress to act, then <laughs> we're all going to be dismissive Dan's, aren't we? Well, it's so far that's been the case, but I think it's changing um, um, because, you know, it's... Um, what, what here, Here's the reality that I think we deal with is that Politicians are afraid of the people they represent, but they are terrified of the activists in their own party uh, because those activists are the ones who, by golly, show up to the convention or to the primary uh, and vote you out um, in the primary. And so uh, this happens on the left and on the right. And so, so what, we, uh, what we're seeing right now is some activism on the left that is causing politicians to respond to climate um, and to put it higher on their list of talking points. And um, our job, we see at republicen.org, is to uh, create not so much pressure, but support on the right. We, we don't intend to push members of Congress around or threaten them. What we intend to do is say, uh, really, uh, come with me to BYU. Listen to these college Republicans Hear them saying that they want you to be looking for answers to climate change and then feel their support. Um, and, and so that's what we think we've got to do is grow the support on the right for action on climate change. And as a result, um, elected Republicans will feel 
that they can venture into solution, into the competition of ideas on climate change. And, you know, so many of them, Tom, know that it's real um, and know that it's human caused. Um, they just are trying to figure out how to get past the primary, how to get past the convention with some, some, some loud voices uh, that, uh, that hopefully we, we hope to turn around. We're talking with Bob Inglis. He's a former Republican congressman from South Carolina. He's the founder of Republican Republic EN. And EN stands for Energy and Enterprise. Um, he is uh, trying to uh, to convince Republicans, conservatives, about human-caused climate change, and uh, convince them that uh, carbon tax is uh, is one of the main main solutions. We're going to talking about solutions, carbon tax, and other solutions. And uh, much more. You can join this conversation. Hope that you will uh, by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. We will have more following this break. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2019. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is a former uh, Republican Congressman Bob Inglis uh, from uh, South Carolina. He is a founder of uh, Republic EN uh, at uh, Virginia's uh, George Mason University the Energy and Enterprise Institute. Uh, he is out to uh, convince especially Republicans and conservatives about human-caused climate change and, uh, and solutions. We, uh, in his view, all need to get behind. You're welcome to join this conversation about climate change uh, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, uh, so, uh, Congressman Inglis, I'm, uh, I'm curious, when... Uh, well, well, you you lose your primary, right? And, and I, I guess the the impulse might have been, well, I'm going to go back to real estate law. You decided to 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 reach out to what what were the first few um, events like when you entered a, a Republican filled room and you stand up and and you start talking about climate change. But back then, Tom, uh, sort of 2011, 2012, it was pretty lonely, um, uh, but. Uh, over time, what's happened is it's more and more eco-right, as we call them, uh, eco-right being a balance to the environmental left, eco-right compatriots have come on board um, or come online, I should say. So, for example, um, when I introduced that bill in 2009, none of the following groups existed. Uh, there was no Citizens Climate Lobby. There was no Citizens Climate Lobby Conservative Caucus. There was no R Street Institute. There was no Niskanen Center. There was no Clear Path. There was no Alliance for Market Solutions. I could go on. Uh, all, none of these groups existed. And so, um, yeah, it was lonely uh, in 09 when I introduced the bill. It was lonely when I lost in 10, lonely when I started out in 11 and 12. But now, got more and more friends on the eco-right. And so um, that's helping turn things around because now um, really the, the differences are, uh, it, it, it's one thing that we've got more voice, voices on the eco-right. Um, another difference is the economy is so much better than it was back then. Um, and then a third difference is we've all had experiences with climate change, more and more experiences. And so as a result... 
Um, it's getting easier to make this presentation of a solution about climate change to conservative audiences. Well, so you're mainly talking about carbon tax? Is that what you're yeah, we, talking we about? Th- we think that the best way to deal with the problem of climate change is simply to fix the economics. And what we've got right now is uh, what economists call an unrecognized negative externality. We've got um, me at English coal-fired electricity socializing my soot. I pump it up in the air. It uh, lands in my neighbor's lungs. Most of them cough it up and move on. Some of them end up at the hospital. When they go to that hospital, English coal-fired electricity isn't accountable for those, isn't forced to pay for those hospital admissions. It's a great deal for me. Um, and I'm also not held accountable for the climate damages that my CO2 is causing. It's a great deal for me. And I'm offering what looks like cheap power to my customers. But someday, and I hope it's real soon, uh, those customers and their representatives in Congress are going to say to me, Inglis, your power isn't as cheap as you say it is. (laughs) Because if you consider all those costs... Um, and if you were held accountable for them, we'd see your true cost, and then we'd um, we'd see innovation. And by the way, we wouldn't have to prop up with subsidies, wind and solar and electric cars. The market would do that on a level playing field. There wouldn't be any need for subsidies. So it all starts with ending my implicit subsidy, what economists would consider here an implicit subsidy, uh, uh, that I get at Inglis Coal-Fired Electricity of of uh, socializing my soot. And so, for example, I uh, uh, showed the students um, uh, Milton Friedman on the Phil Donahue show. You remember he was one of uh, Ronald Reagan's economics advisors. That's right, yeah. And uh, uh, conservatives know to sort of bow at the mention of his name, you know. And so, uh, so uh, Dr. Friedman is asked by Phil Donahue, on uh, that talk show, TV talk show back then. And, uh, well, what do you do about pollution then, Dr. Friedman, if you don't want to regulate it? And Friedman says, you tax it. You tax pollution. And so then he goes on to explain how you've got to internalize negative externalities. You can't allow them to be external to that product. You have to internalize them. And he says the government has to step in and do it. Uh, That's Dr. Friedman. This is rock-solid conservatism that actually is also completely acceptable to progressives. Um, And so it's uh, it's actually what every economist believes is that you've you, that you should internalize negative externalities. So yes, um, that's a long precursor, Tom, to saying that 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 the the method by which we think at Republic E and that should be accomplished is a simple carbon tax. Um, you know, we think that carbon tax should be paired with a dollar for dollar reduction in other taxes or a dividend of all the revenue back in the form of a, a dividend to the taxpayers. Or, um, uh, so th- those, that's one imperative for us. It has to be what's called revenue neutral. And the other is it has to be border adjustable. Uh, which means we apply it to imports. Oh, uh, and I, I assume that's get. I, I think that's gaining some traction in an economic uh, argument, economic improvement argument. Uh, but isn't isn't it the, the case that it's it's deeply ingrained in in Republican beliefs that uh, you know you you reduce taxes, you um, you know you you reduce government. Right. That's that's our challenge, of course, is it, you know, you and, and I admitted this last night at BYU and I'll, I'll be talking to it at Weber and uh, is that uh, it sounds strange at the outset, doesn't it? Uh, a Republican talking about a carbon tax. Who wants another tax? Uh, but uh, if you go to our website and look under the media tab, you'll see another one of Reagan's economics advisors, uh, Art Laffer doing a little five-minute video with me, and he says he's agnostic about climate change. He doesn't know whether it's real or not, but he says he doesn't need to know. 
All he needs to know is your taxing income currently. He says if you could tax anything else, tax it and untax income. So um, that's, he says it's a no-brainer. Um, so that's, that's what we had. Now, the, the, the challenge, though, Tom, is that there's a real lack of trust. And so repeatedly, for example, I was, uh, on Tuesday, I was in Vernal, Utah, and one of the very first questions at the Chamber of Commerce was, how do we know that if you put on this carbon tax, you'd actually dividend the money back or that you'd cut taxes somewhere else? They just didn't believe it. And I said, yep, that's the challenge, is, is, is would you, do you have enough trust in your government that they would actually cut your taxes somewhere else or that they would faithfully return that money to you uh, in the form of a dividend? And, and the challenge at the moment for all of us to deal with, uh, not just Republicans, but Democrats as well, is somehow reestablish that trust and reestablish the belief that we are free people and self-governing um, because, you know, if we can't self-govern, let's call up the queen and apologize and tell her, you know, come on back, queenie, we need you to rule us because clearly we are not able to govern ourselves. Um, so what I told him in Vernal is if it's not in the four corners of the bill, um, if it doesn't say in the bill that we're going to put on this carbon tax, but we're going to also dividend the money back or we're going to cut your tax somewhere else. If it doesn't say that, don't vote for it. Um, don't do it on the come. Don't do it on trust me. Just look at the bill. If it's in there, it's good. If it's not, it's not. And so, but, but it does show that the depths of the distrust that we have fallen into between ourselves, really. What was the general reaction in Vernal? Vernal's an energy center, right? Energy is very important to the economy. Yeah, it's really great to be there. First of all, you know, as a, a guy from South Carolina, it's just beautiful to see the terrain. And the, I mean, it's so, so, you know, so different and wonderful uh, from, uh, you know, we've got old mountains in South Carolina, a little, little teeny bit of mountains in South Carolina, but they're a lot, a lot older and eroded and covered with trees. It'd be beautiful. Uh, but, but seeing the uh, uh, geography, geology out here is just really, uh, is really great. So that was wonderful for me. But also what was neat is just to to uh, learn from uh, some really thoughtful people in Vernal about um, how it is that they're in a tough spot, that they um, you know, have an economy dependent on petroleum, and all this talk about being beyond petroleum, as BP says it's going, um, is threatening to them. Um, and uh, so I, I got a deeper appreciation for that. I felt uh, uh, quite, it felt familiar to me in this way. The, 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 uh, the geology didn't feel familiar. It, it felt uh, spectacular. But the, the feeling of that vulnerability felt very uh, familiar to me because I represented a district that was a textile district until the multi-fiber agreement expired. And then... South Carolina and Southeastern textiles went under the bus. Um, and uh, so I could, I could identify with that feeling of, of vulnerability. Um, the good news for us in South Carolina is BMW came to make uh, cars in South Carolina and um, has about $7 billion on the ground right now in South Carolina making some very fine cars. And they literally replace the textile industry. So uh, that's uh, that won't happen everywhere, you know. Uh, it was a very unusual situation that BMW was coming. But um, uh, but but uh, Vernal and other places uh, have, ha- have a need to figure out what's next, even while continuing to prosper as they are with what will be a, a, a fairly long tail on, uh, on exploitation of petroleum, I think. I think in some ways this argument of climate change does get, purposely or no, caught up in, in the whole broader argument over globalization and, and some people being displaced. I, I think about the coal some yeah. politicians uh, make great hay uh, on on this. That uh, it's those people who are who are trying to do something on climate change that that lost you your job. Yeah, it's so important, Tom. Yeah, that to to help people see the reality of what's happened to coal. You know, it's so easy to blame that on 
uh, on President Obama, for example, uh, say it was his fault. Um, it, it, what I like to tell people is, if Barack Obama, I'm a Republican, right? So I'm saying I'm saying this. If Barack Obama were engaged in a war on coal, uh, it's like this: that scene at the end of the of Saving Private Ryan where the captain is down on the ground, he's got a handgun out, and he's shooting at the tank that's coming at him. Well, the guy in the tank is George Mitchell. Um, he's a Tex he's a, a, a dead now, but he lived in Texas, and he perfected the art of fracking. He was a guy in the tank. If Barack Obama was conducting a war on coal, he was a captain with a handgun. Uh, George Mitchell is the one who destroyed coal. Um, because what he did was he created a way to get more natural gas, he expanded supply, brought down price, and as a result, for example, in my state of South Carolina, six coal-fired plants converted to natural gas. They're no longer customers of, of Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Wyoming. They're customers of Texas now. And so that's what happened to coal. Um, and, and so to go around and blame it and create a scapegoat, that's good politics maybe, but it doesn't help the people figure out that, gee, that's what happens, isn't it? When innovation comes, things change. And of course, if, you know, the reality is all of us like change if we're in control of it. None of us want to be changed. Um, so, um, that's, that's our challenge, right? As, as the free enterprise system does this, brings about this change, there are people who, who win and lose. And we need to care for those people, particularly the folks in coal country. We need to figure out a way to, for example, fund all their pensions. Um, if I were still in Congress and this carbon tax were going through, I would happily accept uh, a, uh, a some of the money going to buying out all the miners' pensions because those pensions are going to go bankrupt when their companies go bankrupt. Um, so it's an example of how we've got to care for the people who provided us energy, um, and now the world has moved on to a new, cleaner energy, but it won't stay at natural gas forever. It's going to move on to something else after that. Um, and uh, so, so it's a constant process of change there. Uh, should should the government get involved and and uh, promote speed up uh, transition to alternative uh, energy? Yes, and the best way to do that is simply to fix economics, like we were talking about earlier. Through that carbon tax, that's revenue neutral, so we cut taxes somewhere else or return the money in the form of dividend, and then apply it to imports. That's the most effective way we believe to get change quickly because the most dynamic force on the planet is free enterprise. Um, and, um, you know, some of your listeners, Tom, probably don't share my faith in free enterprise. They, they probably are thinking, gee, this is the guy Inglis at uh, republician.org. He's got an awful lot of faith in free enterprise. And I do. Um, but I, I would point out to uh, th those that might have a little bit of doubt that there are a lot of progressives, too, who agree that that is the most dynamic way to fix this. Um, but, but if I could just make sure to, to show the dynamism of it by, by, by mentioning uh, the, the, the border adjustment. It's so important, uh, as, as we were saying earlier, to get the world in on this, that this has to be a worldwide solution. And so the key to this would be saying that we uh, would be applying the tax on entry of goods into the United States if they're coming from a country that doesn't have the same price on carbon dioxide, the same kind of taxation. Now, um, China would object to that, pr presumably. They would say that's an impermissible tariff. We think they lose based on precedents in the chemical industry. And then uh, within 24 hours, because you know they have an amazing way of reaching consensus in China, um, they would uh, do the same thing we're doing. Um, and here's why. Let's say there's a sheet of flat steel coming from China. Maybe it's a state-run industry. Maybe they've stolen our technology. Maybe they've manipulated their currency. Anyway, it's coming through the port of Charleston, South Carolina right now, let's say. Um, if we apply the tax, 
um, and they objected, but then they lost in the WTO, we could go ahead and collect that tax, and the tax would be remitted to Washington. Um, if they had collected that tax in China, the money, the tax money, would end up in Beijing. So uh, 24 hours later, they've got the same price on carbon dioxide. They've got the same taxing system. Um, and then the whole world follows. Because if you're doing business anywhere in the world, you're doing business with the United States and China. And so without any international agreement, without any bowing and scraping at the UN, the United States leads the world to a solution based on the strength of access to its market. In other words, you want access to our market? Fine, we like your goods. It's just you're going to pay our carbon tax on entry unless you have the same tax at home, in which case, no tax on entry. And so um, that's the exciting part of this, is then you have 7 billion people around the world seeing the true cost of energy and demanding innovation, driving entrepreneurs and investors uh, and inventors to get married and to present products to the market that meet our needs. Um, and so it's pretty exciting, really. It's, it's not about doom and gloom. It's about exciting opportunities and free enterprise ahead. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment with Bob Inglis. He's a former Republican congressman from South Carolina. He's founder of Republic EN, uh, which is uh, targeting their message, I guess, to everybody, but specifically to Republicans and uh, conservatives, uh, trying to get uh, them on board with uh, belief in human-caused climate change and solutions such as uh, carbon tax. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation to upraccess at gmail.com. Your question or comment, welcome, upraccess at gmail.com. We'll have more uh, following this break. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2019. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Bob Inglis. He's a former Republican congressman uh, representing uh, South Carolina, uh, talking about climate change. And uh, that's his focus these days. He uh, founded an organization called Republic EN. Um, and he's uh, targeting his message, message specifically uh, to Republicans, to conservatives, uh, trying to convince more of that group uh, about human-caused climate change and about solutions such as uh, carbon tax. You're welcome to join this conversation to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. So, uh, Congressman Inglis, I'd like to uh, zoom out a little bit uh, from climate change. There's an intriguing photo caption uh, here in this article I was reading. Uh, it's you at the Citadel, which is a uh, military academy in, in South Carolina. Uh, what you're we're doing there, at least in part, encouraging uh, them to work with those who have opposing political views. I think we all see the need for that these days. What would you say about that? What advice would you give? Very important, I think, that we realize we're all in this together. Uh, Surely in the country of the United States, we're in it together with uh, things like budget questions and uh, health care and all of those kinds of things. Um, and in, surely in climate change, we're literally in it with the rest of the world. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, we've gotten to a place where um, uh, we, 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 we see the, uh, the other side as the enemy, you know, and um, uh, we need to drop that and come up with the uh, a different view, which is, no, no, they're, they're our countrymen. They might be wrong about things, you know, or we might want to improve their thinking. But, 
uh, from our perspective. But uh, but the reality is that uh, they're not our enemies um, because a house divided against itself can't stand. So uh, we, we need to figure out a way to, to find some common ground. And, and probably, you know, this is where I think, Tom, uh, climate is an exciting um, opportunity, not just to fix it and all those free enterprise opportunities I was just talking about, but it may also model the behavior that could heal our republic. Um, because, you know, uh, it, it's uh, healthcare is hard, uh, for example. It's, uh, it's almost um, unsolvable because there's a 100% death rate and a lot of suffering between here and there. Um, but, um, and then there are other issues that are hard, you know, uh, budget uh, decisions. But in the case of climate change, it really is possible to bring America together. Um, the thing that inspired me is I heard that Al Gore and uh, Art Laffer, Ronald Reagan's economics advisor, um, are neighbors in Nashville, Tennessee. And Art has been over at Al's house. They talked it through and they came to the conclusion that what we've been talking about here, a carbon tax that's revenue neutral and border adjustable, works for both of them for very different reasons. And so... What inspires us at RepublicEN.org is if we can bring Art Laffer and Al Gore together, we can bring America together, and perhaps that coming together on climate might help us to model this behavior about how it is that, okay, come with your best ideas. Let's not call you the enemy. Come with your best ideas. I'll come with my best ideas, and let's see what we can get them together and and find something that works for us in other things like healthcare or budget matters. I wonder, we just have a, oh, two or three minutes left. Uh, I wonder, put on your prediction hat here, um, what you, if there is going to be a tipping point on this, and I'm sure you, you hope that it's tipping point toward, you know, more people, a critical mass believing in human-caused climate change and getting behind the solutions. Uh, what would that tipping point look like? And when do you think that's... If it happens, when do you think that will happen? Yeah, pray not a natural disaster that uh, focuses the mind. That that's one scenario. Uh, pray not a uh, a budget crisis uh, that would focus the mind. Uh, pray rather that people just uh, start realizing that, gee, there 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 are there is danger here, but there are also opportunities, and so. Um, uh, here, here's hoping that th- that uh, the smart money that's already moving, uh, that is people starting to invest in ways uh, that move away from uh, the, the fuels that create the problem, uh, that they might just uh, cause the rest of us to come along and realize that, uh, hey, we, we need to move here. But but it, it, is, uh, it is possible that it takes those other things. I hope not. I uh, hope that we can figure out how to, how to get going without those things happening. We uh, have an email. I want to get in here. We just have about a minute left. Uh, this is Christine. Heard your program while driving. I love the overall idea of the carbon tax that you've spoken of. Just wondering how you actually figure out an appropriate dollar amount on various products. Uh, more on the practical application. Yeah, mine was $15 a ton, rising to $100 a ton over 30 years' time. Others are talking $25 or $40 per ton, uh, rising steadily over time. Um, Combined with that dividend or a cut in other taxes, to put that into uh, concrete terms, $25 per ton price on carbon dioxide results in a $0.25 per gallon increase in gasoline and about $11 a month increase in electricity bills for the average home. Not catastrophic, but it does signal the need to innovate. And that's what a carbon tax is all about, is is creating the need for innovation. Just 30 seconds for this. I, I can't, I'm just curious, I, I can't hold off asking you. So, uh, you know, the political... Uh, uh, politics right now is is just a circus, or or you might uh, you know glass half full. Very very interesting. Um, are are you glad you're out of Congress, or you wish you were back in? Oh, I miss it. Uh, it's wonderful because it's full of mission and purpose. Um, and uh, you know the best you can hope for out of a career is it's got mission and purpose in it. Um, 
And so, uh, but I'm gr- glad for what I'm doing now because it's surely big enough to be about, you know, helping, uh, helping with many others to uh, address this question. So um, uh, I, I miss Congress, but I'm enjoying what I'm doing now because it is uh, mission focused. Well, that's Bob Inglis. He's founder of Republica EN. He's uh, trying to uh, convince uh, conservatives, Republicans, about human-caused climate change solutions such as carbon tax. Bob Inglis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Tom. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. The other day, I plugged in my cell phone to recharge and felt a surprising rush of gratitude. What if this were how we gained energy, too? Sitting for hours, tethered to an outlet, we'd probably twiddle our thumbs and hum 80s billboard hits just to keep boredom at bay. Unlike our cell phones, when we're feeling tapped out, we have a much more interesting way of refueling. Food, in all its flavors and combinations, Not only do we have veritable feasts at our disposal every day, we get to determine how our energy will taste. Savory, sweet, salty, sour, and lots of other cravings that don't even start with an S. While our devices lay on the countertop corded to their power sources, we open the refrigerator to survey the possibilities. This is an important moment in the pursuit of authentic health, according to Elise Resch and fellow nutritionist Evelyn Triboli, who co-authored the book Intuitive Eating. They have summarized the intuitive eating approach in terms that echo the mantra, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Based on research and experience as nutrition counselors, Resch and Triboli advise, enjoy eating food, not too much and not too little, mostly what satisfies you. Many of us become mired in the perceived shoulds and shouldn'ts of eating instead of celebrating the opportunity to re-energize with food that is enjoyable. Among other principles to rely on fullness cues and honor your health with gentle nutrition, the hub of intuitive eating is discovering the satisfaction factor. Resch and Triboli write, When you eat what you really want in an environment that is inviting, The pleasure you derive will be a powerful force in helping you feel satisfied and content. If you feel truly satisfied with your eating experience, you will find that you'll eat far less food. Conversely, if you are unsatisfied, you will likely eat more and be on the prowl, regardless of your satiety level. Returning to that open refrigerator, where we stand ready for an energy boost, healthy questions could include... What do I feel like eating? Do I want something sweet or salty? Hot or cold? Crunchy or smooth? How will my stomach feel when I'm finished eating? Will a dense food leave me feeling uncomfortably full? Or an airy food leaving me feeling empty? While our technology devices charge in stale silence, we have the freedom to move beyond the utilitarian for foods that power along with flavors that please. In the long run, this advantage may prove useful. When artificially intelligent robots take over the world, we can offer a portion of pity. Siri and Google never savored a single bite of cheesecake. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.